This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. This morning, it is my privilege uh, to lead us through our study of the book of Romans, and we find ourselves in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. I trust that you have found your place there, and if you have, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We began looking at this passage last week and made it all the way through verse 20, so my plan this morning is to look in more detail at verses 21 through 25, but I will review just a little bit, especially for those that weren't with us last week, so that we have the proper context as we study God's Word together. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability to carry it out, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being... But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's ask the Lord to bless his reading And the preaching of the word, you may be seated, and let's bow as we do that. Father, we are grateful for the scriptures which bring clarity to our Christian walk with you. We pray that you would continue to do that this morning as we study and analyze the experience of the Apostle Paul, which in reality is the experience of all of us who are true believers in Christ. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we read this passage of Scripture, and as you can see, even as I read it, I sort of stumbled over my own words because Paul himself is writing so much and he's really repeating himself over and over and over again in this passage. Paul is not writing about the Christian's authentic struggle with sin because he's perfect. It's not as if the Apostle Paul has mastered sin. In fact, quite the opposite of true is true, and he's honest about that in this passage. He has not attained to perfection. The things that he wants to do, he doesn't do. Paul has not graduated from the school of sanctification. It's very clear that he's still in it. In fact, he's like every Christian pursuing holiness. 
It's sort of like a mountain climber seeking to be closer to God and more like God. But Paul understands he has not reached the summit. He has not reached the top. And the reality is it takes a lifetime of prayer and effort and discipline and above all grace to be what God has called us to be in every area of our lives. One time a group uh, was preparing to climb Mount Blanc in the Swiss Alps. And the evening before, a guide explained that the key to reach the top of the mountain was that it was crucial that each climber only take with him the bare essentials in terms of equipment. In other words, everything else needed to be left behind, everything that wasn't necessary to make the hike. But there's always someone in a group who doesn't pay attention. Uh, In this case, it was a young Englishman who not only uh, didn't listen to the advice of the guide, but he actually packed extra equipment. But before too long, on the way up the mountain, certain items began appearing in the snow. First, a blanket. Over there, a cap. And even further, an expensive notebook that he had ditched along the way. And when the others reached the top and were talking, it was the Englishman who admitted those, in fact, were his items. You see, in the Christian life, in order to reach the summit of godliness, we must cast off all the unnecessary accessories of life, anything that would encumber us. And this, of course, involves repenting of sin, letting go of sin, But sometimes it involves letting go of things in your life that people around you may not understand why you've let go of those things, but you understand because you are focused, your eyes are to the top of the summit, and you know what you have to do to get there. And so all unnecessary accessories are shed. This is very similar to what we read in Hebrews 12. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, that is, looking up, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But some, like the young Englishman, learn the hard way. The question that faces us all this morning is, do you want to reach the top or not? Well, in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, Paul describes his own intense battle with sin. He's honest. Um, He does not sugarcoat his experience. He is very clear that he struggles with sin. In fact, some commentators, I don't necessarily agree with them, but Paul had mentioned the fact that coveting earlier in Romans 7 was the the sin, thou shalt not covet, that law and the, the sin that Paul struggled with was perhaps the same sin, the sin of coveting, the sin of lust, that lingered in the Apostle Paul's life even post-conversion. But what we do know is that the depth of struggle described and the humility of spirit characterizing the man of chapter 7 is not just the experience of the Apostle Paul, it is the experience of the holiest of Christians. In fact, note this, Paul is not describing in Romans 7 the experience of an unbeliever. No, He is describing not even the experience of a weak believer. Rather, he is describing the experience of a mature spiritual believer. And that ought to offer comfort 
to your hearts this morning to know that the great apostle Paul struggles with the same sorts of sins that you and I struggle with that we often don't want to admit publicly. And in this passage, Paul, as we've called them, has made four confessions, and we've called this four confessions of a spiritually mature believer. Now, we saw the first two confessions last week, and since Paul effectively repeats himself in each one of these confessions, we see sort of the same pattern coming out in each one of these confessions, and I've alliterated that for you in your notes so that you can follow along. But he's being truly helpful to all true believers to see what we are up against and to provide comfort, reminding us that we aren't alone in our struggle with sin and our struggle with sanctification. So let's mention the first confession we saw last week in verses 14 through 17. Paul effectively says here that a spiritually mature believer will confess that he has separation anxiety with sin. And he notes here in verse 14 a common predicament. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. That is the predicament of every true child of God. We are not sold under sin in the sense of the way that an unbeliever is sold under sin. They are in bondage to sin. They can't help but sin. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and don't have to sin, but we often sell ourselves out to sin. We go back to that master that once was over us. And Paul is grieving over this, and so he moves from the common predicament to the common process. Verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. That is, experientially, he didn't understand it. Theologically, he understood. He lived in the already not now. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but he wasn't perfected yet. He wouldn't be perfected till he saw Jesus. But he says, I don't understand my own actions experientially, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There are times in every true believer's life where they say that. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We are walking contradictions in our actions, in our thought life, and others take note. But notice, Paul moves from the common predicament and process to the common problem. He says in verse 16, Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, the law is not bad. I need to hear the law of God because I want to know the standards of God. He goes on to say, so, verse 17, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, Paul is sort of saying this tongue-in-cheek when he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's really admitting that he himself is the problem, but he personifies sin because he wants to separate himself from identifying with sin because he knows that the law is good. As he's just said, he wants to identify with the law of God. He wants to identify with the Spirit of God that empowers him to obey the law of God. But he's being honest. The reality is, I am the problem because there's sin that still dwells within me. This is quite a humbling statement by the Apostle Paul, but he quickly moves to give a second confession in verses 18 through 20. And he follows the same pattern, a common predicament. Notice verse 18a, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That is true of all mature, mature spiritual believers and really any believer that left to ourselves, there is nothing good. There is no power in and of ourselves to do good, to do right, to live obediently before God. Our flesh gets in the way. Our bodies have not been resurrected yet. 
Sin has cursed us inwardly and outwardly. And Paul moves from the common predicament to the common process in the second part of verse 18 and verse 19. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's essentially what he said earlier in verses 15 and really verse 16. He's repeating that here and he says in verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I Keep on doing. This is the process of sanctification. It's a constant battle. It's three steps forward and maybe five steps back. And Paul's being honest about this process. But then he moves from the predicament and the process to the problem. He returns back to the problem in verse 20. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, repeating verse number 17. Tongue in cheek, he knows that he is the problem. He's taking responsibility for his sin, but he's personifying sin. It is an enemy within him. He doesn't want to do the things that he does that are sinful. This is such an honest confession by the Apostle Paul. And he is helping us make the humble confession, for example, that John Newton made when he said, I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I want to be, I'm not what I hope to be, but... By the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. Paul understands he's not what he used to be. It used to be far worse. He was in bondage to sin. He thought he was blameless with respect to the law. He couldn't even see beyond himself because he viewed himself as the cream of the crop of the Jewish people, circumcised of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a a Pharisee. I, I was blameless. Paul now sees who he really is. True believers see who they really are. True believers are not afraid to apologize for their sin. True believers are not afraid to ask forgiveness for their sin. True believers are not afraid to publicly confess their sin. Here is the great apostle Paul with pen in hand, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and at the same time from his own experience, testifying to the entire church his struggle in the process of sanctification or growth and holiness. But he doesn't stop there. He moves to a third confession, which we see in verses 21 through 23. If in the first confession he was basically saying that all spiritually mature believers have separation anxiety with sin, and if he said in verses 18 through 20 that we don't feel like we're in control of our holiness because sometimes sin gets the upper hand, here in verses 21 through 23 he says there are two types of laws who are at work in the soul of a true believer. And he follows the same sort of pattern as the other confessions. He begins with a common predicament. Notice verse 21. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now again, this is really a repeat of verse 14 when he said, I'm I'm of the flesh sold under sin. Or verse 18a, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. This is another way of saying that. Here's the common predicament. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The flesh is ready to be activated. And please note here in verse 21, the law that he refers to is not the law of God that he mentions in verse 22. Because in verse 22, he identifies another law, namely the law of God. 
Here in verse 21, this is not the law of God. In fact, it's not called the law. Notice in the English translation, it's called a law. In the NASB or the New American Standard Version, it translates it as principle. This law that Paul found operating within was like a ruling principle of sorts that is common to all. I suppose you could compare it to, I guess, the law of gravity. If you walk close enough to the edge of sin, you can fall and the fall will be long. There was a law operating in Paul, a rule of action. This operates in all true Christians, a powerful force that we don't want to yield to. What is this universal law? Well, notice he identifies it. He says that when I want to do right, which he said over and over in this passage, he says evil lies close at hand. I take that to mean evil actions lie close at hand. Evil desires lie close at hand. It's as if Paul is saying, you know, sin may be lying down in a Christian, but it's not sleeping. It lies dormant, uh, like cancer cells ready to spring into action. That sin is like a sleeping giant within a Christian. And you don't want to awaken that sin, those evil desires. You want to care for your soul even more than you care for your own body. You don't want to feed the cancer of sinful, dormant desires. Anyone who knows me knows that I love candy. I love sugar. And my wife tells me that sugar feeds cancer. And so I try, but I confess to you, I fail every day of my life to resist sugar intake. Sin is like sugar. It tastes very good, but it can have disastrous consequences. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 21. There is a powerful rule or principle, a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I know that the flesh Evil desires, sinful desires and actions are lying dormant and it won't take much temptation. It it won't take much encouraging for that to awaken. You know, God warned Cain when he was angry that his brother Abel's sacrifice was accepted but not his own. God warned him in Genesis 4, 7, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin crouches, it lies close at hand. It is easy for us to taste and to touch, even in the strongest of believers, leading us oftentimes into areas of disobedience in our lives. And here Paul is just being honest. He's repeating this predicament of all true Christians. You know, James put it another way. James admitted in James 3, 2, that we all stumble in many ways. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I often quote this passage, but I want to turn there because I want your eyes to see the text. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you. It is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Paul is not in bondage to sin as a true believer in the sense of an unbeliever. 
Sometimes he sells himself out to sin, just like you and I do. It's not that there's not an escape route or an escape hatch. God provides that. He doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. But so many people quote 1 Corinthians 10.13 as if that escape hatch is always going to be easily accessible. But you need to follow your eyes up to verse 12. What does it say? Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, the only way verse 13 works is if verse 12 is operating in your life. If you are humble enough to admit your susceptibility to temptation, your susceptibility to operate according to the flesh, your susceptibility to awake that sleeping giant that is ready to wreak havoc. Take heed lest you fall. Because a prideful soul easily becomes a tempted sinner. And Paul is laying out for us the common predicament in his confession, but he moves from the common predicament again now to the common process. This time in verse 22, in the first part of verse 23, he lays out again our struggle in sanctification. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but... I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Again, the process. He had described it in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He described it in verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And here he's saying basically the same thing, but we know that he's describing a saved person or a regenerate person, someone truly born again because of the way he describes himself. Verse 22, he says, for I delight in the law of God. An unbeliever does not delight in the law of God doesn't want to hear the law of God. He suppresses the law of God. He suppresses what he knows is right and wrong within his own conscience. Unbelievers don't want to hear the law of God. This is a true Christian. This is Paul post-conversion. He says, the reality is I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That is, in the depth of my soul and who I really am now that I'm a new creation, I delight in the law of God. In Romans 8, 7, he describes an unbeliever as being hostile toward God. So I believe that those commentators that think Romans 7 is about a post-conversion experience are wrong. Unbelievers don't delight in the law of God. They're hostile to God. But Paul says, I delight in the law of God, just like the psalmist, as we read earlier in Psalm 1, delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated upon it day and night so that he could be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers. Paul says, listen, I I delight in the law of God. The inner being describes who we really are. So going back to that law of verse 21, that powerful force, Paul is saying now in verse 22, that law of verse 21 doesn't ultimately rule my life. The law of verse 22 does, the law of God. And even when I don't obey it, I wish I would have obeyed it. See, true Christians admit that. Of course, sometimes I don't obey But even in the midst of sin, I'm grieving the reality that I'm not obeying it in my inner being. 
who I really am. And as Christians, we don't obey the law of God. We don't delight in the law of God to try to earn salvation or achieve salvation. We do it out of a heart of gratitude because we've been saved by God's grace. We've been adopted into the family of God. We don't want to dishonor and displease our Father. Jesus said that true Christians seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew 6.33. Jesus said in Matthew 5.6 that true Christians hunger and thirst for righteousness within their inner being. And so sanctification is the process of being renewed daily. That is why Paul wrote what he did in 2 Corinthians 4. If you turn over there with me just for a moment, we have time to look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, this is why I don't lose heart. Verse 16, he says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, our inner being is being renewed day by day. Paul Paul says this is part of sanctification. Our outer self may waste away, but the inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. Sanctification is the process of being renewed daily. And how does that happen? Well, sanctification is also the process of being strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes to the Ephesians, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit, Notice the language, in your inner being. There's that language again. 2 Corinthians 4.16, he speaks about the inner being being renewed. Here he speaks about the inner being being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And how does this happen? Well, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. It doesn't happen apart from the Word of God. That is the handle by which the Spirit turns in our inner being to conform us to Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That is the inner being. That is the essence of who we really are. So the Spirit of God renews us in knowledge after the image of its creator. People sometimes that are not of the Reformed faith will ask me what all the fuss is about and our desire to cross every T and to dot every I of our theology. Well, it comes down to this issue of knowledge. Your spiritual growth will run in direct correlation to the depth of your knowledge of Scripture. So the lack of your knowledge, the lack of depth that you have about God's ways, God's truth, God's gospel, God's theology, you'll be like a a shallow Christian, superficial, because you're not filling your mind with the, the knowledge of God. And so Paul says here in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is who I want to be. I want to know God's word. I want to be renewed daily by the Spirit as I fill my mind and absorb my soul 
in the pages of Scripture, but the sanctification process is also a battle because the other side of the coin of this process, notice verse 23, Paul just says what he desires, verse 22, but he says verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The waging war, as Paul calls it here, is with another law. What law is that? It's the law of verse 21, that powerful force that evil actions and desires lie close at hand. And he says here that this law, verse 21, wages war against the law of my mind. And I take the word mind there to be synonymous with the inner being of verse 22. And Paul says sometimes this governing law of sin gains the upper hand. Paul even says, notice it, it makes me captive to the law of sin. Not in total bondage to sin. But in the sense of verse 14, that there are times we sell ourselves to sin. We, we prostitute our services to sin, our former master. Paul's being honest here. The law of sin, he says, dwells in my members. And there's this warfare going on. This other law that makes me captive to the law of sin. In other words, Paul is saying that sin is like a governing law that lies dormant within us, waiting to strike in the warfare of the soul. John Chrysostom, the golden-mouthed preacher, ancient father of the church, commenting on this verse in a homily, says this. He says, Paul calls sin a law, not because it establishes good order, but because those who are under it obey it completely. And that's true. In a sense, when Christians sin, it's as if they're unwilling captors, but the reality is you can't half sin. Either you've sinned or you've not sinned. There's no category of a half sinner or only half committing a sin. If you've violated the law of God, if you've trespassed His law, you've broken it. So once you give in to sin as a Christian, that's the idea Paul has in mind when he says that we are captive to it. We become captive to it because we've given in to it. This is the common process. It's the process that you and I walk every day of our lives. There's not one day that we live perfectly in obedience to the law of God. We may delight in the law of God in our inner being. We may pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us. We may sense and experience a semblance of victory. But there are times in which in this process... We find ourselves in captive to that same sin that we were delivered from through the blood of Jesus. This common predicament and process leads Paul to describe a common problem. Notice the second half of verse 23. He says, this makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells, notice this, in my members. In my members. He's taking responsibility. This is not the fault of others who tempted me. This is not the fault of God who's sovereign over all things and ordains all things. This is sin that dwells in my members. So here's the question. How do believers avoid being held captive by sin? Well, let me quote quote Martin Luther when he stood before the council 
And he said that my conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Luther had his conscience bound and held captive to God's word, to Scripture. Now, all people have a conscience. The conscience is God's monitor of the soul, indicating right from wrong. But for a Christian, the Bible teaches us that not only do we have a conscience, but that conscience is informed by Scripture, number one, and number two, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God takes the sword of the Word of God and He activates the conscience to be sensitive to the threat of sin or or evil that lies close at hand, desires and actions. And throughout Scripture, the Bible describes the conscience in several different ways. Earlier in Romans chapter 2, it's described um, as a witness. Romans 2 verse 15 that unbelievers, even unbelievers, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul had a lot to say about the conscience, the monitor of the soul, even in an unbeliever. He says this in chapter 9 of Romans, verse 1. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, I know that what I'm saying is true even if you don't believe me. My conscience is clear. My conscience is speaking to me. It's giving testimony. Romans chapter 13 and verse 5, he says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul says we are to submit to governing authorities. That's the example that he gives. For the sake of conscience. That is to say, it's the right thing to do. But the Bible lays out a lot of right things to do. And for the sake of conscience, the Christian must absorb themselves in the Word of God to know the right things to do. Informed by the Word of God, then empowered by the Holy Spirit, this is an issue of conscience. How is your conscience? Has your conscience been seared? and hardened by sin, that's when you lose the battle. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in fact, go ahead and turn there just for a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he speaks about the conscience and he says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. That's the life of a Christian, behaving in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. You know what that is? That is a clear conscience. Your conscience is clear because you're so absorbed in the Word of God. Your knowledge of the Word of God is so strong. That taken together with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit allows you to lead a simple and sincere godly life. That was the testimony of Paul. It all came down to an issue of conscience. One of my favorite Puritans is Richard Sibbs, and he expounds on this verse, 2 Corinthians 1.12, and he pictures the conscience as God's court within us. 
He says the conscience is like the register in court. Your conscience makes records and keeps a diary of what you have done. Maybe even what you should have done. The conscience, he says, number two, is like a witness. It's called the testimony of conscience in 2 Corinthians 1.12. And Sib says the conscience tells us what we've done, what we haven't done. The register records it. Number three, there's the accuser that works with the witnesses. It accuses or excuses. Pronounces us guilty or innocent. Fourth, Sib says the conscience is like a judge because he helps make a final call when a case is unclear. And fifth, Sib says that the conscience is the executioner. Because we read that when David was convicted of his sin, that David's heart smote him, convicted him, slapped him on the wrist, whipped him, lashed him because of his guilt. Sib says, God hath planted in man this court of conscience. You say, why was Luther so bold? Why was Luther so intent on living for the glory of God and leading a whole revolution and reformation in that vein? It's because Luther's conscience was truly captive to the Word of God. Not to sin and its temptation. So here's Paul's advice, don't let conscience be hardened or seared by repeated takeovers by sin. Learn to confess your sin regularly and quickly. This is waging war well within the battle of the soul. So Paul gives four confessions. We've seen confessions one through three, but now he closes with a fourth confession. In the first confession, he basically said, look, You have separation anxiety with sin. In the second confession, he says, we all don't feel like we're in control of holiness because sometimes sin gets the upper hand. In the third confession, as we just saw, he says there's two types of law at work. That's why sometimes we don't have the upper hand. Now, fourth, he basically says that the only way through the sanctification struggle is to keep your eyes On Jesus, he begins with a common predicament. Verse 24, he says and confesses, wretched man that I am. Again, that is not something an unbeliever confesses. If an unbeliever confesses that, then he's not an unbeliever anymore. He's been converted. This is post-conversion Paul This is the great apostle, three missionary journeys, tons of churches being planted, the one everyone looked to. And he says, wretched man that I am. His failure demoralized him. It made him feel low. He grieved and he groaned over his sin. Beloved, can I just say this morning that we need more of this sort of mentality among the people of God been in the ministry for over 20 years and nine times out of ten when someone is sincerely and rightly confronted with their clear sin even Christians refuse to repent 
what do they do? They often run. They leave the church. They go somewhere else. They set shop up somewhere else because they have a clean slate. Wouldn't it be much easier just to repent of your sin? Because the scriptures tell us that when Christians repent of their sin, they are to be restored to the body of Christ. So much pride fills our souls, doesn't it? And in that moment that we're being confronted, we feel welling up inside feelings of superiority, feelings of fear and shame. That wasn't Paul. Oh, wretched man that I am. He's grieving and groaning over his sin, much like the psalmist, let me remind you, who said in Psalm 38, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails in the light of my eyes. It is also gone from me. Because of my iniquities, the psalmist says. Because of my foolishness. Because of my sin. This is Paul. He knows his predicament. Oh, wretched man that I am. But because this is our predicament, it leads Paul to cry out. Notice in verse 24, who will deliver me from this this body of death? It's very interesting language. Because the word deliver there is actually a, a word in the Greek that is a military term. It was used of a soldier who would carry his wounded and fallen comrade away from the battlefield and to safety, risking his own life. Paul says, who's going to take a risk for me? Who's going to deliver me from this this body of death? Because this is the predicament of, of all Christians that we carry about the body of the flesh, the body of death. And it could be true, although I can't prove it. We know that Paul was from Tarsus, and in Tarsus there was an ancient tribal group that would sentence murderers to torment, leading to their eventual death. The corpse of the one murdered would be tied to the killer, and they would live the rest of their days, how short they would be, caring about the dead one that they had murdered. And eventually the decaying body would infect and kill the murderer. It's possible Paul had this image in mind. I mean, Paul was well aware, Romans chapter 5, of the consequences of Adam's sin, our father. He's aware of the consequences of his own actual sins, Romans 7. We're all in this predicament, but Paul is not hopeless and neither should we be because he moves from the predicament to the process. Notice the beginning of verse 25. The common predicament now moves us to the common process. He says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ our Lord. Different translations will put it differently. Paul is here alluding, I think, to the process of sanctification. It is torturous. 
But when Christians are sensitive to sin, when they grow in holiness, it ends up in a good place. He's already dealt with uh, in the chapters on justification the reality that thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin and the penalty of the law. We've been freed from the law of God, Paul has said. We've been freed from the penalty of the law of God, the penalty of God's wrath. But here he's giving thanks to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that because he's been delivered from the penalty of sin, he knows someday he will be delivered from the very presence of sin and the very power of sin. He's looking to the future when he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord because the same Jesus Christ who delivered me from the penalty of sin will someday deliver me from the presence and the very power of sin itself. And Paul longed for that, beloved. He lived with his eyes focused on heaven. He said this, for example. He said in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we truly are. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He put it this way in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he speaks about the creation itself groaning and he speaks about our resurrection. When Paul gives thanks to the Lord here, he is giving a nod to that process of sanctification. It begins with our deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the penalty of sin And we are being delivered from the power of sin as we grow in holiness. Someday we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin, but that won't be until we're in the very presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he thanks Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul doesn't take one ounce of credit for his salvation. He doesn't take one ounce of credit for his sanctification. He comes to the end of this and he says, here's the end of the process, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He underscores the full name of Christ to underscore full credit to Him. He is Jesus. Yahweh saves. Same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. Only Yahweh saves. He is Christ. That is the anointed one. The chosen one. John 3.16 The only begotten Son. John 14, the way, the truth, and the life. And He's Lord. He's Jesus Christ, the Lord, the sovereign ruler and owner and master. So that every Christian, no matter their struggle with sin, they know who their true Lord is. They may sell themselves out to sin from time to time. but They always return to the Lord, the master of their souls and give thanks to God. Paul comes to the end of all of his confessing of really unfolding his heart before the church. And it's almost like he reaches a point of frustration where he finally just says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the only thing that will deliver me and get me out of this. But after giving the common predicament and the common process, he closes with a common problem. He, he returns back to the fact that His problem is himself. Notice the end of verse 25. He says, So then, 
I myself serve the law of God with the mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I serve the law of sin. I myself, my flesh, serve the law of sin. Paul ends by giving glory and credit to God for his salvation and sanctification, but he also takes personal blame for any remaining sin in his life. You can't say the devil made me do it. You can't say, well, God is sovereign and He ordained it, so He caused it. You must admit with Paul, with my flesh I serve the law of sin, and you must grieve over that. You must grieve over that even as you look to Christ. You keep your eyes on Christ. True Christians aren't perfect. True Christians are focused on Jesus Christ. That was certainly Paul. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says this is how A mature believer lives. You forget what lies behind. You recognize your sin. You confess your sin, but you leave it. You move on. Mature Christians, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. That's Paul's way of saying, look, there might be people that claim they're Christians that they don't really struggle with sin like the next guy. Paul says, look, let me just tell you. Let those of us who are mature think this way. This is going to be a struggle. We forget what lies behind. We move forward. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. Paul says, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We need examples. We need examples like Paul. We need ministers who are humble. We need elders who are humble humble we need deacons who are humble we need congregations who are humble humble like Paul humble also like Augustine of Hippo we began two weeks ago looking at Romans 7 by mentioning Augustine's confessions that work that he wrote Augustine lived uh, in a very strange period of church history he lived in between two major creeds And he lived um, really at the climax of the Roman Empire, and he died at the end of that Roman Empire. Augustine often wrote about heaven, a place he called a place of holy eternal rest, a sanctum eternum odium, where we will be still and know God. Brother John played that this morning in the prelude, be still and know God that God is God. In the year 430, the Vandals were laying siege to the city of Hippo. Augustine orchestrated the city's final defenses from his deathbed, and he was so weakened in his older age that he had his faithful scribes write out the Psalms in large letters. And um, when he could no longer hold those pages... He had those scribes paste the pages of the Psalms on the wall. 
So that the last thing that he saw when he left this earth was the word of God. The last thing on his heart and on his mind was the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom along alone belonged thanks for the rich salvation that was given to Augustine, a man with many flaws, a man who did not have perfect theology, although he's considered to be the greatest theologian of the church, a man who wanted the word of God before him at his death, a man who wanted Christ before him, a man who had heaven on his mind. That's the key, heaven on our mind, Christ on our mind. That was Paul. His eyes were ever toward Christ. As he approached the summit of godliness, he knew he wasn't perfect. His aim was far higher than his reach. But he reached there nevertheless. And he comes to the end of Romans 7. He says, look, this is my heart. What, what a testimony, what a humble minister of the gospel to share to the church his struggle with sin. Dearly beloved, we must come to grips with our own sin. That begins by confessing it. We must come to terms with our own weakness. That begins by being humble. Living a godly, sincere, simple, humble life. That was the Apostle Paul. And when we move into chapter 8, He's going to tell us about life in the Spirit. He's going to tell us how we can have victory in ways that are unimaginable because God dwells within us. Be still and know that I am God. I am with you and I am in you and I will be with you until the end. Father, we thank you for the Scriptures which crystallize for us and really bring to home to us who we really are. We oftentimes think so much higher of ourselves than we ought to. We confess that to you as being sinful, as being presumptuous. Lord, if the great apostle Paul could be so humble as to confess four times his struggle with sin, why are we so slow to admit our wrongs, to make them right, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, to seek a life of greater holiness. We know this can only come through the knowledge of your word as we're informed by it, as we're empowered by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you will take the truths that we've studied here in Romans 7 and apply them to all of those here who have heard these. Lord, we pray you would be glorified in all things. We ask that you would seal these truths to our hearts until we come again this evening together again under your word. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.